welcome to the first official episode of the Nerd Culture Podcast. Our first uh, episode is actually online and on tunes. It's the Zero Edition, our pilot edition. Uh, it's a, a pretty bad edit, I must admit, but uh, I'm learning, folks. I'll get this going as we go. So our first official episode. I'm your host, David. Uh, we actually have two Davids with us, so I will be referred to as David, and my friend to the left will be Richo. Hey, Richo. Hey, how you doing? I uh, also have Crystal. Hello. Who's our uh, lovely female component of the team. Our token female, thank token you Token girl. That's me. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Yeah. <laughs> and We're all going to have a red shirt somewhere, I suppose. <laughs> I'm not expendable. <laughs> That's true. Shame on you. And uh, the person who just insulted our token girl was Luke. I'm bad because I haven't had coffee yet. <laughs> The harshest critic in the world. And even, coffee, by the way. And even worse when he's had no coffee. So just to give a, a bit of an idea about us, uh, four friends, um, we normally will see you know, movies and TV and read comics and discuss with ourselves and stuff like that. So we decided to uh, give this podcasting thing a go. And discuss it with you. And discuss it with you, the world, our <laughs> listening audience. Because we love you. <laughs> we want you to feel our pain, but that's just... So hopefully... Uh, that's just Luke. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you, you enjoy it, and uh, please, uh, if you do, subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us. Um, the more love we get from you guys, the more love Apple will give us, and everybody needs love from Apple. Find us on iTunes. <laughs> you can also find us on the web, www.nerdculturepodcast.com. That's Nerd Culture Podcast, one word. You can also find us on Twitter, Nerd Culture Cast. All right, without further ado, let's rock into Popcorn Junkie. Popcorn Junkie is where we do our movie reviews. Every episode we'll have at least one movie review, whether it's a current new release or a retro classic. So in our Zero episode, we reviewed Thor, which was a big hit amongst the uh, NCP crew. Thank you, Richard. And, uh, but for the first official number one episode, we'll be reviewing Source Code. Alright, New Culture Podcast crew has just gotten back from seeing Source Code. It's a new film with Jake Gyllenhaal, Michelle Monaghan, and it was good! <laughs> well, at least in my opinion. But I'm going to hear from the rest of the crew before we hear mine, and it's uh, the usual jumping to and fro. So... We're going to start the party off with Crystal. Crystal, what did you think of Source Code? I liked it, but I didn't expect you to ask me first, so I had nothing prepared to say. Well, that's the way we roll here at Nerd Culture Podcast. <laughs> you haven't got anything to say? Uh, well, my immediate reaction at the end of the film, I can sense a TV spin-off series. All right, well, James Bond style, or... <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal, we'll turn in. <laughs> Luke? Uh, look, it's an okay film. I thought it started off really well. The um, the opening scenes with you know him on the train at the start, and then with him in the installation, I thought good set up the mystery, um, set up a little bit about who he was, and kept that going for a reasonable amount of time. I thought the more interesting stuff for me was actually not on the train. The more interesting stuff was in the installation with Vera Farmiga and Jeffrey Wright and Jake Gyllenhaal's sort of struggle um, conflict with those characters. I thought it was a very 
long at the end there was it, everyone complains about Lord of the Rings and it's 50 million endings yeah. and I thought there were 50 places where this film could have stopped uh, definitely def- had a very clear ending yes there is one shot and it, it just continues on was, we're not giving anything away obviously but it's just I actually expected the credits to roll mm. at that point there is, I was ready to grab my drink mm. and then what the hell is still going? And there is one. The second and third <laughs> and fourth endings of the film. There is yeah. one shot in particular where you just think this is, yeah, this is the last shot. Yeah. Um, it's quite cool expressly to be the last shot the way they've shot it. Um, cool. Yeah. The, the time it would have taken to set up. You sit there going, okay, yep, this is the end. And then it goes on for about another five, ten minutes. Um, part of that is to mm. pay off some stuff they've set up earlier, but I thought they could have. Yeah. dealt with that they didn't need to do well, that they, they, well they could have dealt with that before that last shot yeah I also think the terrorist subplot was actually kind of boring and I didn't think the relationship between Michelle Monaghan and Jake Gyllenhaal was as well developed as it could have been fair enough well actually yeah, I actually quite liked it um, and I have to totally agree with you the ending it just there was one point where I just I thought it just should have ended not because mm. I thought it was, not because I was bored I was actually very entertained mm. I just it just would have been a perfect ending in my yeah, head. It's it's just, it, like, it's like, this is like a hallmark moment. Mm. I disagree about the relationship. But as you as you go along in the movie, you learn that the the Christina and Sean haven't actually known each other all that long. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> um, I actually felt that the film really wasted what was a really interesting premise. Mm. As, as Luke said, the the early setup was actually quite interesting. But after, I'd say probably about halfway through the film, I was actually getting quite bored. Yep. Um, and just thinking, yeah, okay, you, you're really not doing much here with, with a good idea. And I, I'd, I'd like something more. And, and they set up a mystery, but the mystery really isn't all that interesting. It doesn't mm. really play a major role overall in the film, even though... It's the whole premise of what he's doing in the first place. Which is why I found the scenes with him in the installation with Vera Farmiga and Jeffrey Wright far more interesting because that was actually developing more of a relationship, uh, more of a mystery, sorry, particularly about him. Yeah. Well, they're also the stronger character moments, mm. I think, overall. Mm. Um, it, yeah, and it was full of character moments. Mm. It, it was full of character moments, and I do re- appreciate that, but I just felt that there was an opportunity for probably a better film here with, mm. the, with the idea that they established for the film. Um, and I really just wish they'd given me something a little bit more than what I got in the end. And that's part of so why I got a bit dissatisfied, I suppose. That's part mm. of why I think that the relationship wasn't as well developed. They could have um, set off that lull bit by actually have, by dealing with Michelle Monaghan. And there was a, because there's a moment where I thought that you know ultimately he's got nothing to lose with all this. You know, he, you know they they keep sending him back, but ultimately he's got nothing to lose, yeah. so he can actually waste time. By you know talking to talking to these people and well, you're you know, saying they like, should have gotten sexy in the toilets. No, no, I'm not ta- no, I'm not talking about that at all. But you know, as, as one of the moments should have been just about one of his trips back should have been just about them. If that makes sense. That does make sense, but uh, it, it takes him a while to realise what he can and can't do in that situation. He, it takes him a while to even realise what's going on. Mm. And I, I mean, thought, in the end, it was basically just an extended Twilight Zone episode. That is and exactly that's right. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Or I mean, Twilight's own greatest TV show ever made. So, or an Adam Limits episode. We'll save that for another podcast, obviously. But, um, but when it hits a certain point in the film, um, yeah. especially... So where's once, it going here? Well, once the mystery is resolved, mm. once the actual reason for the train blowing up and the person behind that is resolved, really, my interest in the film was already starting to lag by that point anyway. But after that, it just kind of just kept going, kept going... And 
yeah, I, eventually I just thought, no, I've really had enough of this film. Alright, cool. Well, that pretty much sums up Source Code. Uh, we'll do the traditional NPC, three good things, three bad things. We'll start off with Richard. Uh, three good things. Uh, I thought uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance was very good, and he was very convincing. He sold me very, very much on uh, a man that you know really has no idea what's going on, and he's is, is really struggling to deal with the situation that he finds himself in. Yeah. Um, I think the concept behind the film was very good. The actual idea itself is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, even though Shocking science, but it's a bit, bit very cool anyway. <laughs> well, I'm all for, you know, bizarre pseudoscience. So uh, I love that sort of I'm stuff. I'm happy for pseudoscience when the situation to, you know, calls for it, but uh, when you get some... Clearly no research into actual physics <laughs> took place during the writing of the script. Yeah, well, but... well, actually, no, I disagree. I think some... I think they paid attention at the start. Like, when they explained it at the start, this is how the source code works. It's like, okay, well, you know, that sounds fairly plausible from, you know, my limited knowledge of physics, but... Uh, and they just throw it all away anyway. Mm. I don't know, it's hopeless. And uh, it was nicely directed. I thought mm. uh, the the Duncan Jones directing his choice of shots. Anything um, else Duncan Jones has done? Moon. 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 Ah, nice work. I like that film. An excellent film. Mm. Uh, he's A also better film, I think, too. Superior also. to Source Code, but yes. still, you know, you have to work with what you got. Mm. And I believe he's also, because his father is David Bowie, I believe he's also done some... Uh, video directing and things like that for Bowie in the past. Luke, you're three good. Um, I agree with um, Richo. I think Jake Gyllenhaal um, is very is very convincing and nice to see him playing sort of like a Donnie Darko type <laughs> character. Yet no, not he's a bit crazy Darko. there. Not in Donnie Darko, but even the, the whole time paradox thing. It's certainly a step up. It's certainly a step up from Prince of Persia. <laughs> um, but well, he yeah. was the only good thing in Prince of Persia. Um, but I thought he was very sense. good. Do you reckon he that darkness around his eyes is makeup, or that's just him? He just no, that's him. That's him. Um, <laughs> he has it in every film. It has <laughs> to be him. I thought he, ca- I, you know, I thought he carried the film. I thought there were some really good ideas. There were some good ideas early on, mm. um, and some interesting ideas, which um, were a bit of a surprise. Didn't see them coming. Um, and yep, I do think Duncan Jones actually has a career as a film director because his, dire- in spite of you know the scripting, um, his ability to you know play shots and tell stories actually pretty good. Agreed, Crystal. Well, at the risk of being repetitive, I have to agree that Jake's performance was quite good. We love Jake Gyllenhaal on Nerd Culture Podcast. He's our new mascot. And he should stick with his native accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that accent from Prince of Persia. What was up with that? He made that decision. He was so we don't love him that much then, is that what you're saying? It was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> He's no Clive Owen, as we've discussed. He's no Clive Owen. Um, uh, as, as you know, I love a good time travel story, so anything involving time travel, I'm there, I'm watching. Um, oh, but then we get into the argument, is it a time travel story? Well, it sort of is, in it, and it keeps repeating. It's a bit Groundhog Day, which I guess. Um, it That's a good connection, Groundhog Day. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Didn't it's you? like a serious Groundhog Day. I didn't think of it at the time, but I was too busy. Well, I, actually, it did remind me of, of an episode of Fringe, but uh, speaking of TV, TV I can... But it's, that's the other thing. I, I think, I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it clearly can become a TV series quite clearly. You could have a different mission every episode. So you reckon that's a good thing? Source code, the series. 
I don't know if it's a good thing. It depends on how good the series is going to be. Only if Duncan Jones directs every episode in a J.J. Abrams style. <laughs> source code. I can actually... Alias. <laughs> source code alias. God, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Keep Jennifer Garner away from source code the TV show. Please. Um, Please. I can, I can actually see this working as a TV show. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I definitely. Totally I agree with you, Chris. I reckon... I think it might actually work works. better for me as a TV show than it did as a movie. Well, like I said, I'm it was basically sure. extended Twilight Zone episode anyway, yeah. so I think it can definitely work. Yeah. And it's been like, what, 20 years since Quantum Leap anyway, so hey, we're ready for a new one. <laughs> and it was almost structured as a two-parter anyway, mm, really, when you think of, about it. I mean, it got yeah. about halfway through, and that that could have been the end of the film, mm. yeah. really. I mean, it left a lot, a lot of unanswered. I wouldn't have been too shocked to have seen it to be continued. There's a lot of places you could go in, within that universe. There's a lot of... Stories, or universes. Universes, exactly. That's the next thing I was thinking of because not only have they create, you can create a new world, you can create multiple, multiple worlds. So it, it could be the next, the next sliders. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we don't have to go too far with mine because I pretty much agree with everything everybody said. Uh, I actually thought it was also quite sweet, really, and quite romantic. It's, uh, it didn't start off that way, and but eventually... It did sort of get that way, and I quite liked it, actually. I was quite surprised. A bit of, a, bit of romance in the bit of sci-fi. I didn't Stuff mind for it. the guys and the girls. <laughs> I found and that, I'm both. <laughs> I actually found the romance a little bit distracting, to be honest with you, at times. Ah, um, no. I think it focused too much on that and not, a, not enough on the mystery. No, I, thought, I thought the romance was a bit underdeveloped. It was underdeveloped, true, well, but that's it was good to like have it there. I said before, it's that they Sean and Christina only just met, so... Oh, but no, but, but carrying it through the film, oh, as, as in developing yeah. their relationship um, over the course of the... have only got eight minutes, and it's the same eight minutes Yeah, it's eight minutes. Over. What are you going to do, dude? <laughs> well, Grant Hogg managed to do it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he had Michelle Monaghan, he had Andy McDowell. So what he said? Oh, Andy McDowell is going to come and kill you in your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she could do that. I would um, put it past and it was just—it was just, it was just good to have some some and classic make some, afterwards. some classic sci-fi. I mean, it's just—it was your standard, you know, time travel, mm. alternate world, whatever you, how you ever you want to go without giving too much good away. Point. It's yeah. been a long you time know, since some, I've seen a good science. You know, there was no big guns. There was mm. no aliens. I'm not giving anything away here. There's no aliens, people. And uh, it was just, you know, just except some, for that one in the background that you'll probably end up seeing on YouTube over and over. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, making, I'm making stuff up. <laughs> oh, trying to deceive people. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I do agree in that the actual mystery was solved far too quickly. Mm. I mean, it's. I mean, yeah, you've only got eight minutes, but you could have. I mean, you could have thousands of thousands. I mean, I mean that bit where they kept sending him back and bringing him back, pretty much instantaneously. Mm. Yeah, you could have done that a few more times, as we've indicated. Mm. The story went a little bit further. Some variety. We'll say that Some for the variety. TV series. Mm. Um, but that pretty much covers it all, really. I mean, you want to Wait, go well, into... I've got one more thing. Oh. What, Luke, the name of the woman who played Goodwin? Uh, Vera Farmiga. She's okay. in Up in the Air. She, she did, I think she did a wonderful job, and especially mm. you could see... She's the, excellent at everything she did. See the emotions mm. playing on her face, mm. her, her, how, how much she was torn, even though she didn't say a lot. I think that was worthy of a mm. Yeah, no, she is actually... Problems in the whole were good. Jeffrey Wright, I thought... Um, was a little bit overdone. I actually didn't think he was all that good. Alright, any uh, any other sort of highlights? Um, I actually came out of it pleasantly surprised because I went into it thinking, oh, I'm not really sure I want to see this now because having seen the trailer, I felt like I'd already seen the whole film. 
Yeah, good point. I was pleasantly surprised that the trailer wasn't the whole film. The film had much more to it. Very good point. The trailer was kind of disappointing. Uh, ratings out of Luke's. Crystal? Three and a half. Three and a half Luke's. Luke? Two. No, it's watchable, but nothing brilliant. David? Yeah, two and a half Luke's for me. All right, I'm going to give it three Luke's. And uh, that is source code. Awesome, thanks everyone. So on to Dust Jacket. Dust Jacket's where we review a classic of science fiction literature and will be moderated by Richo. Richo, tell us all about it. Well, I've decided that uh, since I haven't really read very many science fiction books over the years and that my nerd culture therefore is somewhat lacking, I would find the top 100 science fiction books of all time. A quick Google search got me to sci-fi lists, which actually gave me 200 books to choose from. And uh, basically, each podcast, we will be reviewing one of these books, um, discussing the pros and cons of the book, and also looking at where it is on the list and whether it's deserving of its position. So what novel have you got for us today, Dave? Well, today we'll be reviewing The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. It's number 54 on the list of greatest science fiction books of all time. Um, It was written in the 1970s and was actually also um, both a Hugo and Nebula Award winner. And we're big fans of the Hugo Awards, yeah. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The Nebulas, on the other hand, yeah, they're just, you know, they're like the uh, the The Golden Globes of the... Of the science fiction literary the awards. are like oh, Golden Globes. I think you're being too generous. I think the Nebulas are more like the Logies. <laughs> <laughs> the Hugos are where it's at. Poor Nebula. But having said that, this book won both awards when it was released. So that's not bad. That's pretty mm. impressive. It's basically obviously it was a slow week. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you beat me to that one. <laughs> you got to be quick. Uh, the Dispossessed tells the story of Shevik who is a scientist on an anarchist planet. Um, He's studying a principle of, now I've got to get this right, simultaneity. I pronounce it simultaneity. Either way, (laughs) he's a scientist and he has this theory. (laughs) He's some guy. Your pronunciation gets zero loops. (laughs) Uh, Basically, this uh, principle that he is studying will revolutionise interstellar civilization by making possible instantaneous communication. And yes, I did read that directly from the dust cover of the book. Uh, This uh, has been his life work on the planet he lives on, which is called Anaris. But he's found that his research isn't actually getting him anywhere on that planet. And so he feels the need to actually leave the planet and travel to its sister planet, uh, Eurus, which is a completely different philosophical background. Um... And is Isn't it like, so, so it's sort of like uh, the United States versus the Soviet Union sort of deal? Uh, not exactly. Anaris is actually a society based on anarchist philosophy. And one of the interesting... So that'd be the United States. <laughs> uh, no, actually, Eris is more like that. Eris um, is actually very much a capitalist-driven society. Uh, Boobies. What did you just say? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> With boobies. The, the women have these beautiful, elaborate dresses and they're bare-breasted. That is absolutely correct. Mm. <laughs> the I'm women of Eris are actually walk around topless. One of the first interesting things I noticed about The Dispossessed is that whilst it's almost a manifesto of anarchist theory, 
Um, the world of Anaris isn't actually presented as a utopia. Uh, the book is makes a, a, a really good effort of trying to study not just the theoretical of anarchy, but actually its practical applications as well. And V for Vendetta style? Um, well, V for Vendetta, not exactly, because V for Vendetta... Um, you can tell I read the book a long time ago, because I have no clue. <laughs> v for Vendetta really um, sings the praises of uh, anarchism more than I think The Dispossessed does. But that isn't anarchism as a, as a form of uprising and protest, whereas, it is, that, yeah. whereas The Dispossessed doesn't actually feature anarchism in that regard quite that's, as heavily. And that's true. Uh, the, the Dispossessed, um, the planet has actually been um, an anarchist planet for over 150 years. So really, anarchy has had time to settle in. And that's where examining the practical side of... Um, anarchy comes from because it's actually you've got a society that's now fully mired in in an anarchist um, belief so really there's there, there's none of that sense of we've got to move to anarchy because anarchy has already happened um, and Eros how can you have a stable environment when it's, they all believe in anarchy well that's actually really a very big part of what this book is about in fact it spends a lot of time uh, really debating the pros and cons of anarchy and um, that's really where I think probably the biggest flaw in the book lies is that it's all, it becomes mired in its own uh, philosophy. It mm. spends so much time discussing anarchy and telling us all everything we'll ever need to know about anarchy and a whole lot more, but at the expense of really of character development and of a, a story and a plot. Mm, um, it becomes a textbook. One word review. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. Um, because I think of the the entire group here, although you've said that, well, you said, Dave, that you read it years many ago. Many moons ago. Many moons ago. I think the other person who actually finished the book is the person giving the review at the moment. So, <laughs> um, and, and I'll be honest with you, that is a bit of a shame because the book actually really picks up, probably in its last third. Oh, I haven't given up on it yet. I just haven't finished it. I just, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, can I just point out something here? The last third. No, no, the last third. I'm with you. I, I, I stopped reading at 150 pages. Which is just about the point when it starts to be interesting. <laughs> okay, you want to... Okay, That's unacceptable. So 150 pages of what is actually kind of interesting anarchist theory and, you know, a, a slightly interesting um, look at, you know, simultaneity. But the story starts at, at page 150. I am sorry. The story doesn't actually start at page 150. Don't be sorry, I'm with you. The plot plot just becomes more interesting, I think, because it it moves beyond just, you know, theoretical arguments about um, anarchy and looks at Eurus society and um, the attempts to bring anarchy into Eurus society as well. And, you know, so you get in protesting and very, very 70s... Yeah, but it doesn't uh, need to be that way. I mean, so, look, so, let's, 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 let's look at our Zero Edition. I mean, the book that we reviewed for our Zero Edition. Foundation. Seminal. 46, 40, pa- 46 pages. pages and, and you're in. You know everything you need to know. You're willing to go with it. Whereas this, I'm sitting there going, you know, Ursula Le Guin, by this stage, a well-known writer, probably has an editor. Wouldn't the editor have sat down and gone, uh, yeah, Ursula, um, yeah, this is all interesting, but, you know, you might want to bring this plot point on page 151 into page 10. And having said that, though, 
It did win both the Hugo and Nebula Awards and was, I told highly, you it was a slow week. highly praised when it was released. Obviously there was a lot of commies on the board that, that week. <laughs> well, I think probably... But see, that's, that's interesting. Um, the, it's interesting that it's I'm one sorry, the I Hugo... I'm sorry, I don't think it goes easily. I'm sorry, I'm just playing that. That's, well, I am to a certain degree too, but a lot of what I say, I actually I do agree with my own theory, you know. Um, you know, it's not the, the interesting... It does has won the Hugo and the Nebula because it's not, you know, like a Ringworld or Demolition Man, which are big idea... Um, and fast superior fiction. books and, and fast superior books it is actually you know a more example of um, social political science fiction and um, very much a social and political um, views as they were being expressed at mm. that time um, you know there, there was a big anarchist movement coming out of the of the late 60s um, the book is also very um, very strong in feminist theory doesn't it also have some um, sort of Vietnam War analogy in there somewhere well, there, it, it, don't they go to a third place? No, but there is um, uh, protest rallies, which I think, are, and violent protest rallies that. So, uh, what they're, they're, they're protesting of? Well, they're, they're protesting um, basically against the capitalist approach that Eurus has, and, and they're protesting pro- against boobies. Mm. <laughs> Anarchist movies for that matter. The book is really a reflection of the time in which it was it written, is. isn't it? Mm. Uh, very it really so. whacks you over the so. head with the feminist stuff, and I've only got to page thirty or something. Yeah, mm. and I think I think that's probably why it won the Hugo and Nebula. That's so the female unique in space. Not. No, that's the female man, from what I understand, and I'm being serious about that. There was a book called The Female Man. Yes. I'll be um, looking that up. No, because because whilst this book does have a strong um, feminist leaning, it's more about anarchy, and it's more about a study of anarchy. Um, I think I'll stick with the... Hmm. Well, da, Richo, can you talk about um, Shervik as a character? Because it's sort of... We were talking about, you know, the feminist um, undercurrent of the book, and yet the main character is male. And that is interesting. That's um, a very good point. Like. Well, Shervik as a character... Um, is actually kind of interesting as a um, disillusioned scientist who has a theory that he's trying to um, sell that will actually change the world. Um, it, it, he's an interesting character in that respect and the fact that he needs to leave his own world and the comfort of his own world and travel elsewhere to get acceptance for his theories um, kind of does draw you into him's character a little bit. The problem is, is that really not a lot happens to him for a very large period of the book. And he does spend a lot of his time really wandering around, exploring Eurus and seeing all the good and bad parts of it and still getting more disillusioned and disgruntled. Um, but with no, nothing really... No no, incite, no major no. inciting incidents to really thing. carry carry the story through as a plot. Mm. So, and it's, as I said, it's not so really... Why did it win the two awards? Because it's a, it's, it's because I mean, it's, it's a, awful. It's it's heavy. Because it's, it's a manifesto that studies in really intricate mm. detail, um, and these philosophical theories. What's more interesting in the book uh, is that because the book's split into two, there's got a parallel narrative. You've got Shervik in what you know current time is in his current time, yeah. and then at yeah, the same you've time, got the Shervik that actually leaves Anaris mm. and travels to Eurus and is developing his theories. And you've got, um, you know, young, you know, Shevik begins effectively with yeah. the um, his his past. <laughs> it reboots. Any chance well, to put is... a Batman reference like yeah, sure. yeah. There, there is there is a uh, hey, the audience understands it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Any chance at all? Yeah. Yes, the narrative structure is actually interesting in that it's reflective of uh, the theory 
that Shevik is actually espousing, the idea that time is happening simultaneously. And the book creates a, a loop in that the final chapter, which has Shevik in the past making the decision and, and, and leaving yeah, isn't it? It's alternate, alternate chapters occurring mm. in alternate locations. Yeah, yeah that's first correct. Chap- first and, chapter and, alternate, is and alternate time periods. Mm. As in. Old Shevik, second chapter is young Shevik. Yeah, and so by the end of the book, the final chapter, um, of which is young Shevik, uh, leaving Anaris, actually then basically links to the first chapter of yeah. the book. So mm. it's creating a loop, which is, which is an interesting narrative way of um, giving you a practical example of the scientific theory... Mm. That Chevik is a special. Interesting, but not. But story. yeah, but yeah, but there's no drama in that. That's the that's the big problem. I think yeah, it's an interesting idea to write about, but there is no inherent drama. Is this is the young Chevik storyline more interesting than the old Chevik storyline? Because you are actually seeing young Chevik learn and experience. Well, really, really, what the what the two stories are doing is giving you the contrasts between the two societies. Mm. Young Chevik is really showing you all of the, the gritty details of what a, an anarchist society is, um, whereas older Shevik is then showing you Eurus and the, the contrast between that, which, once again, is really just spending more time illustrating the pros and cons of anarchy. I found it hard to actually get immersed in the story because not only did I not know what was going on, but the character didn't seem to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. And that, that, sometimes, that sometimes can be... A benefit because then you know you and the, the the character and the audience are on the same page. Yeah, it can mm. sometimes be a benefit because you learn together. But in yeah. this case, surely he would. I just, I mean, I could have been reading it wrong, but he's being put on this spaceship and taken off to another world. But he didn't seem to know what was actually happening to him. I would have thought. Well, he know, he knows he's leaving. He knows he's leaving, but and he's not sure the reason why. Yeah, yeah. he he has an idea of what Eurus is like based on really the the rumours and um, prejudices of Anaris against anything that isn't an anarchist society. But there is a certain level of um, confusion in his mind and he's, he is very much a, the, the classic you know stranger in a strange land character that you see in a lot of science fiction. Well, we can debate about that one because... <laughs> I'm using the term rather than uh, than the actual novel itself. Don't but, get me started on Stranger in a But science, science fiction is filled with the Stranger in a Strange Land character. Ah, oh, definitely. You know, it's yeah. one of the archetypes. You know, it it is, absolutely. And uh, certainly Shevik is one of those. And we're meant to be learning as he learns um, about Eurus and about the differences between the two societies. Yeah, but but he's, he, before he even gets off his native planet, he doesn't seem to be done. Mm. I mean... Well, the, yeah, he not much of a clue. Mm. That's true. Maybe he's the classic nutty professor. He knows his theories, but he doesn't know anything else. Yeah. And that's, I think, we've pretty much nailed it here. From a philosophical perspective, The Dispossessed is actually a pretty interesting read. I've learned everything I'll ever need to know about anarchist theory. Anarchy! <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, from a story standpoint and from a character standpoint, it's actually... Um, you know, it's a little bit unsatisfying. I, I didn't come away from it feeling I'd read a good story. Um, I think, Crystal, you made the point. It's very much like reading a textbook. Awesome. So, uh, ratings? Crystal? It's a preliminary rating because I haven't finished it, but two and a half flukes. Two and a half? It may go down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from what we've heard today, I think it will go down. Luke? Okay, mine's... You know, I haven't finished it, but mine's not preliminary because I don't plan on finishing the book because... 
150 pages. I want a story to start somewhere. Yeah, if you don't like it, why mm. finish it? Life's so I'm, too short. I, awfully written in a pro style, but really, one star, one look. I shall also go with one look. <laughs> I'm going to agree with Crystal. I think two and a half loops is, is a good ranking. Fair enough. All right, thank you very much, Chicho. Okay, so let's move on to From the Racks. From the Racks is where the New Culture Podcast crew discuss comics that they have read in the past month. Uh, it could be uh, any r- recent comic or a storyline that they particularly enjoyed from the past, whatever the case may be. Uh, for, the, for our first uh, official episode, we're actually going to do a special version of From the Racks. We're going to review Action Comics 900 and the subsequent controversy around it. It's topical, it's interesting, let's get to it. I think we're going to start off with Richo. Well, the interesting thing about this review is that we're not even reviewing the entire issue, which I believe was somewhere in the vicinity of 90 pages or so. (laughs) We're in fact just looking at a, what, nine-page story written by David Goyer. That's right, We're we're going to ignore part five of the... Reign of the Doomsdays, or whatever the hell that thing was all about. Which is also part 10 of, um, or part 11 of the Lex Luthor story. Yeah, line. yeah, Lex Luthor getting power and stuff. Do you I mean, I didn't it's, have to read that. I know, it's, it was. <laughs> it was interesting, but it's, it's to move on. We're actually, yeah, we're going to, like what David said, we're going to focus on that particular story. Yeah, it's a nine page story written by David Goyer in which Superman renounces his American citizenship. And declares himself to be a godless, cummy, pinko, evolution-loving abortionist. Oh, actually, he uh, declares himself to be now an agent for the entire world, which (laughs) makes a bit of sense. But uh, the actual story itself, I found not really all that interesting. But uh, the subsequent fallout, wow. It's crazy stuff. It's been absolutely amazing. This this story's been all over the American news... um, Fox News especially uh, did some very, very humorous reporting on it. Fox because, as you know, Fox News is uh, that bastion of quality uh, journalism. <laughs> you know, they report and we decide. So, completely unbiased in uh, declaring that Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel would absolutely hate what DC has done with their character. It's a, a rather remarkable f- a bit of fallout from this really quite simple story and mm. uh, I, I don't know I mean I will, we'll go through the rest of the crew but I, I personally find it that makes perfect sense I mean he didn't say that he now hates America uh, and so I think, I think the unfortunate thing is that but it comes on the back it. no he's not thinking it either <laughs> it's just it's just it's just unfortunate things it comes on the back of that awful awful storyline where he just he walked around the the country and do not get me started on grounded oh it's just Terrible! Like, it's just a terrible idea and just yep. a terrible execution and uh, just, I don't know, terrible. And uh, it's, it's sort of, it's, give, it's given the idea that Soup's actually now doesn't love America, which is, you know, clearly not true. He loves everybody. He loves the entire world. And mm. so for him to now defend the planet, it's now to think globally, which is what the Justice League yeah, that's, but that's really what, all about. But that's, that's, what been, that's what he's done from the 50s, you know. He's yeah. not just saved America from, you know... Communism and you know that's it. North Koreans. Like, I mean, it is, it is the American way. So he's it, still going to uphold the traditions that his parents, adopted parents, instilled in him. And so it's, I mean, that's obviously that's not going to stop. With UN citizenship, he can now 
go into other countries without having to worry about being in the front because the Americans have made their stance. Hmm. I mean, it's going to start off hard to begin with anyway because he has the red, you know, the red blue, and you know, he's always known as the, you know, the but this boy is scout. Even, this isn't even the first time that um, superheroes have. You know, op- in the DC universe, that superheroes have operated with UN sanction. I mean, That's Giffen exactly and Demetrius yeah. wrote the JLI, JL Justice League Europe yeah. in the late eighties, late eighties, oh, sorry, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, but the difference is there were not specific, you know, American icons. I mean, Superman is an icon. Batman's but not really an American justice icon. Justice in the American way. In also, fact, I mean, I think America would be happy to get rid of a Batman. <laughs> <laughs> also, the the difference is too. The, the JLI characters didn't actually renounce American citizenship. Mm. Yeah, that's really, the big thing. The, the big furor has been caused by that very specific comment that he makes, that he's tired of having his actions uh, being interpreted as the actions of the American government. Constrained. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but see, that's another thing. It's Superman saying that, but it's not Clark Kent. Uh, that's, that. that's a whole different tangent we'll get onto in a second. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I totally want to go there. Mm. I mean, Susan Clark can't totally, but I mean, even, I mean, it's, I mean, that I just think that line is just kind of clunky. I mean, he doesn't need to renounce U.S. citizenship. I mean, he just needs to. He can still be a U.S. citizen, but then become an agent for the U.N. What it means is, is people focus on that word and and not the rest of the story. Mm. All, All the reasoning behind yeah. why he makes mm. this. It, it, make, it, it actually it, makes it. Sorry, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, in this day and age, why wouldn't he want to? use his powers to save the entire world and not just one country and in the end people it's just a story <laughs> get over <laughs> it <laughs> it's more for what it represents but i mean he never, he never said i mean yeah he does he protects he's, he protects the whole world and he doesn't need to be a u.s citizen to do that but it's it's just it's interesting that he felt the need to say that but he i think isn't he saying that as a reaction to what the um the is it the secretary of state yeah, Secretary of Defence so, uh, is um, telling him, you know, he's like, oh, you've created an international incident, and it's, yeah, more like case, it. it's more a case of, no, there is stuff going on in the world, yeah. and I actually can't because in the story itself, he doesn't actually get involved in any fight at all. He doesn't use his powers; he just stands yeah, there. It's, and it's about it's his not, it's influence. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's it's, what he wants to use. He wants to use his influence more to, yeah. um, you know, to stop. Um, civil to, to stop innocents being hurt. And that's what he's. Yeah. That's what he doesn't go in and into and a war zone and fight. He yeah, goes, but it's because but his presence there makes the, that particular government, who I believe is Iran, Tehran, um, yeah, mm-hmm. they get get upset because they now declare that it's an act of war because he's a U.S. Mm-hmm. citizen and acting on behalf of the U.S. government, which mm-hmm. of course he wasn't. But well, that's how you get interpreted. Another part of the the sort of uproar about this is that we're in a very sort of volatile uh, political climate, especially in the Middle East. And especially right now, I mean, that issue comes out around the same time as Osama bin Laden's situation. But also the unrest in Egypt and... um, Mm. Well, uh, there are now protests in Syria. Uh, Superman does make a comment that the American way is not enough anymore. Mm. Um, And given that we've been, for the last 10 years, we've been in a political climate where the Americans have uh, very much been selling the American way as something that the world should be embracing mm. for one of their biggest you know, heroic icons um, to actually come out against that um, I think has actually really fueled uh, the furor from the, relig- uh, from the political right in the US. Yeah, it's, it's not becoming a UN, a UN agent that's the problem I mean, even being a UN agent will cause problems. I mean if he goes to a country that is not part of the UN 
there's going to be an issue. But it is definitely, I, I totally agree, it's definitely what he says and what he implies by that. This is it's kind of a paradigm shift for the whole Superman universe. It's, it's instead of being locked into this 50s idea of he's fighting for truth, justice in the American way, he's now fighting for truth, justice in the Earth way. The, the, human, way. the human rights the way. The global way. The yeah. global way. Yeah. And that's I just, agree. that's right. I mean, the American way is actually, you know, comes to like the late yeah. 40s, early it's, 50s. It's with kind the, of like with, Star with the emergence Trek. of the Cold War. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of like Star Trek stops saying um, where no man has gone before and it's gone into no one has gone before. It's just moving with the times. Yeah. Well, Mike Huckabee. Um, that's a cool uh, name. <laughs> it is a cool name. Huckabee, Huckabee. Folks. Mike Huckleby um, is a um, former Republican senator, um, presidential wannabe, um, and very, very outspoken member of uh, the political right, has actually described this nine-page story as part of a bigger trend of Americans almost apologising for being American. Uh, Basically, he is really saying that what Superman has decided here is anti-American, that it's, it's... that it's it's showing that Americans no longer believe that their country is great, and you know that the, apparently this story is a real slap in the face to American patriotism. So what do we think of that, guys? He's wrong. <laughs> yes, quite clearly. Um, He's entitled to his opinion. Um, look, yeah, the, the thing we should actually quite... point out here is that we are actually sitting. We are talking about this. We are Australian. Um, On the other that side, that's a good point. We are, yes. um, yes, and so. For, we don't really have anyone like Superman as one of our icons. You know, who's the closest one? Crocodile Dundee, who spends most of the, all three films in America. Really? What about um, Crocodile Dundee? Yeah, okay. no, like, I, just, I, was just, I was just trying to think of you know, something more. that... No, it, it would be Mad Max, wouldn't it? The Australian icon, wouldn't that be Mad Max? But there's no, there's which no is, which is ultra-patriotic Australian figure that is the equal of the ultra-patriotic... Uh, American superheroes like Superman or Captain mm-hmm. America. What about that guy from like the uh, those seventies films, like uh, Des something? Barry <laughs> McKenzie. Yeah, Barry McKenzie. No, you mean typical Ocker Barry <laughs> McKenzie? <laughs> if we have to think that hard about it, we clearly don't have it. <laughs> no, that's, 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 that's what I'm saying. We don't have. I mean, that's why I said mentioned Mick Dundee because he's the closest, you know, sort of slightly global figure that we have. That yeah. sort Lindsay of Lindsay Chamberlain. Except that, that we have. is an actual person. <laughs> um, and you spend, as I say, he spends most of his time. So we don't have... Olivia Newton-John? We don't have, <laughs> at least in my knowledge, anyone even remotely like Superman that we, you know, aspire to be like. So we are sort of distanced from a lot of what's going on. We are, whereas, you know, they're talking about an American icon in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, having right, said yeah. that, at the same time, Superman has become, has expanded. You know, he is actually a global icon. You know, we he's, all he's know the most what recognizable superhero in the world. We all know what the S represents. <laughs> Tony Martin could draw the S symbol as a child, and he used to do that in order to avoid getting beaten up by other kids. There you go. <laughs> that's pretty cool. See, that's how Superman serves yeah. the greater good. That's exactly. right. You don't have to be a U.S. citizen to do that. Tony Martin got saved from being beaten up. Exactly. Tony Martin got saved from super. For, for our international listeners, Tony Martin is in fact a comedian. So you know who he is. And um, he's also from New Zealand. Another one, another one we've claimed. <laughs> we claimed That's right. We don't, have, we don't have much much Australian icons. We don't have much Australians here in Australia. <laughs> They're all New Zealanders. <laughs> um, yeah. No. The interesting thing for me, as a sort of Superman fan, is that 
I've never really connected Superman and what he does with anything intrinsically American. Yes, clearly he's an American hero, but I've always seen him operating on a global and, in fact, universal scale. That's right. It's just when he goes to he goes to another planet, I mean, if he goes to Apocalypse, I mean, nobody says, oh, here comes the American government. No. Like, oh, no here, here comes, comes Superman, the Justice League. Yeah, yeah, here comes the Justice League to kick our butts. I mean, it's... The closest, it's, just damn, it's just damn silly. The closest he's come to actually being heavily politicised is in Dark Knight Returns, where he is an agent of the American government. A flunky of the American a flunky government. Of the ge- a flunky of the American government, which Batman, yeah. you know, takes... Takes advantage of. Takes advantage of, and is quite happy to point yeah. out to him as well that, you know, you are a, he's become a joke. Yeah. Um, I mean, Superman's justification in that is that he gets to save lives. Yeah. But it, it is still seen as something... But even, you know, this is that's a story going, what, back what? over 20 years ago and even mm-hmm. then it's sort of seen as being a bit passe yeah um, so the whole idea now in which it's sort of he's trying to step away from that it, I think is actually quite entirely relevant hmm. let's also consider for a second that Superman is actually not American hmm. that's right in fact he's an Elite. alien and really an illegal alien well he's not illegal he has I mean uh, well, President, he has President Kennedy status. gave him US citizenship true well, that's, I mean, that's that's interesting that they say that. So let's let's move on to, I mean, there's, there's Superman, but it's also like uh, Luke said before, Clark Kent. So what exactly does Clark Kent's position become? I mean, so Superman is no longer a U.S. icon and is now global. What's Clark Kent going to do? I He's think Clark... just a mild-mannered reporter, isn't he? Does he just keep Clark... being a mild-mannered reporter? Yes, but one of the things, and this, is, well, and this is part of the problem. Going back to Granite here for a sec. Um, one of the pro- one of the problems that Superman's had for the past year, I guess, is that um, Superman has it's become more about Superman the icon. You know, mm-hmm. Superman walks across America and not Clark Kent walking across America in an attempt to reclaim his humanity. Yeah. And I think that's been forgotten a bit here too, which is that everyone has now seen Superman as an icon and has forgotten that Superman actually sees himself as Superman second. Mm-hmm. He sees himself as Clark Kent first, mm-hmm. and that is actually the more important one. His role is you know global protector and that's just it his role has always been global protector yeah I think Clark Kent I think Clark Kent would actually make you know is quite proud to be an American this brings up uh, DC's actual response to all of this controversy nice Um, Dan Didio and Jim Lee who are of course uh, along with uh, Jeff Johns the creative heads of DC um, have actually stated and I quote Superman announces his intention to put a global focus on his never-ending battle, but he remains, as always, committed to his adopted home and his roots as a Kansas farm boy from Smallville. Really, they're sort of making the point that we're making, that whilst Mm. Superman is looking now at the global picture Mm. and is working as an international hero, it seems like they still want Clark to retain that that humanity and that real connection to small-town America, so... Hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, the question is, though, is that DC backtracking a little bit on this story? I mean, this is this is their response. It was it, it came out a few days after, you know, the controversy, and uh, I don't think it's backtracking. I think it's just explanatory. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean it's, there's no, there's, I mean, like Crystal said, there's no need for Clark to renounce his citizenship. I mean, it becomes a moot point, so he can stay the, you know, the. Well, nobody else knows Clark as Superman. Well, Mike well, Huckabee. There's, there's a few people that do. Yeah. Mike Huckabee definitely disagrees with us <laughs> on that one. Um, <laughs> what did Mike Huckabee have to say about that section? Huckabee, Huckabee. Well, the reporter. Well, the, the reporter actually used that uh, comment to lead into this idea that 
Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster would somehow hate what uh, was being done to their character. Which... Well, they weren't exactly small town country Bumpers. America either. They lived in the big city. They were New York oh, think... um, uh, Jews. Yes. Having said that, I think uh, you know Superman under Siegel and Schuster was all about social justice and mm. um, you know, the American way. Well, really, truth, yeah, truth and justice was really the primary driving goals of Superman early on. And the, the American way part of it actually didn't come in until much later. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a response to, you know, the rise in communism and... Yeah, it was, it was a 50s, 50s concept. So the rampant sort of patriotism emerging from the post-war era yep. um, was really where Superman became intrinsically connected to the mm. American way. Very good point. Um, I mean, so their their really, concept of Superman is Moses. There was a certain level of patriotism that emerged, obviously, during World War II, mm-hmm. when really, it's probably the point where comics were hit the highest level of actual propaganda. Mm. I mean, that was when we got, you know, Captain America punching out Adolf Hitler on the front cover of his first issue. Mm. That's um, it. I mean, it's, it's, but, it's, but once again, that that core value of fighting evil, in this instance, in the in the form of uh, Nazism and the the Axis powers, was stronger than. It's all about America. I mean, that was once again Superman operating on a global scale, yeah. trying to deal with a global problem. Which he always has been. I mean, he's always been global. Oh, not always. I mean, in, in the beginning, obviously, he wasn't. But it's just in. I mean, the modern day image of Superman is a global hero, and that's that's fine. I mean, he's all his loved ones are still in America anyway. I mean, so it's not that America won't be his focus. I mean, it still will. It's just now he just doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't want to, and doesn't have to represent the government interests. Also, like the fact that in that story, while the, the secretary is talking to him, they've got assassins up on the hill with kryptonite bullets pointing at him. It's like he's, he's your hero, is is your icon, and but you still don't even trust the, to be stand next to him. It's yeah, that's like, and he even says that he says, "What do you think I'm going to do?" So, really, maybe what it is is that uh, David Goya is actually an American apologising for being American. So maybe Mike Huckabee is right in that respect. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not American, po- American po- apologising for being an American. Maybe it's an American apologising for, you know, the the state that his government... I think it's more along the lines of this, the, D, of D, the DC head honchos basically said, we want Superman to become a global situation because of the new movie coming out, mm. and uh, you need to write it, David. Because <laughs> for the screenwriter on the new Superman. That's exactly right. right. David Goya is actually writing or co-writing, we should say, the script for the new Superman film. So it will be interesting to see what that means for what what this story means for the script that they're actually developing as we speak. <laughs> Any uh, final thoughts? Well, I thought it was an interesting thing for DC to do, but I agree with you. Not really necessary for him to, you know, renege his American citizenship. I don't really care. all right fair enough cool thank you very much guys awesome and uh, hopefully we gave uh, you our listeners some food for thought Uh, let us know what you think www.nerdculturepodcast.com throw us a comment Superman renouncing his citizenship does it really mean anything okay so let's move on to War Room is the featured topic section of the podcast where we talk about things close to our hearts, uh, ranging in subjects from our top ten greatest spaceships <laughs> to the life work of Steven Spielberg. For this particular war room, we'll be talking about our top five villains. I thought I'd go a bit 
uh, a bit lighter since our very heavy Superman political discussion. And we'll have some a bit of fun. So without further ado, our top five villains. Each contributor gave me a list of their top five villains, which I then collated to form the ultimate NCP top five villains. I just had to make sure that it was in fact NCP that I said. <laughs> so our top five villains. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the list and we'll have a brief discussion about each villain and why we voted for that particular one. So, from number five, Khan, otherwise known as Khan, Noonie, and Sin from the Star Trek universe, the protagonist of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and also uh, the previous Star Trek original series episode, Space Seed. So, Khan, why'd we vote for him? Number five, Crystal. That's not delight. Ricardo Montalban, the big chest. William Shatner gets really frustrated. <laughs> really frustrated. <laughs> Is... Is that chest real? Uh, like, or let's just is it fake? let's just solve this once and for all. It's yes, a real people, chest. it is a real chest. It's a real chest. <laughs> he worked out like a maniac. Everybody on the production says it was real. Let's just let the man. Rest. So my question then is the ultimate mystery: Why does it look fake? <laughs> because he puts a lot of like Too oil and stuff on it, greases it up. Mm, He's okay. a very intense man. It's just, a real chest. That's really it's that's the full Ricardo. I think. Um, Khan was the perfect nemesis for Kirk. Really, the, the, he's come up against an equal, except the equal happens to be a bit crazy. So, yeah, but Kirk's a bit crazy. So I guess that kind of Kirk, Kirk is a bit crazy. Yeah, but uh, it's just um, Wrath of Khan is one of the most enjoyable Star Trek movies of all time, and and Khan is what makes it enjoyable. Fair enough. I agree. Star Trek Two is the best of the Star Trek movies. Yep. No doubt about that there. <laughs> uh, R- Ricardo Multiband's performance is fantastic. Over the top in when a good I way. First mm. saw it, because I had, when I first saw it, I hadn't seen the original Space Seed episode, so I only knew Ricardo Multiband from Fantasy Island. So uh, I thought that was a fantastic acting range to being the man in Fantasy Island to... God, that that's great. So from going from you know blur yeah. to you know character. Yeah, well, well. <laughs> bear, in mi- bear in mind, I was. That's bear, my name. <laughs> bear in mind, I was quite young when uh, Wrath of Khan came out. So uh, you were looking at it through a child's eyes mm. as well. So, uh, it's, uh, we watched it recently because you know with Star Trek, we watch stuff all the time. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it holds up. It stands the test of time. Mm. It is brilliant stuff. And Wrath of Khan is actually, you know, closer of all the of all the Star Trek films. It's actually closer to being feeling like a storyline that the original Star Trek guys might have actually done. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to number four. Number four is a, a popular choice. It's three votes out of the four people. The ruler of Apocalypse and the wielder of the Amiga beams, Darkseid. Richo. Darkseid is pretty much, in my opinion, the ultimate DC villain. He's all-powerful, he rules an army of loyal followers and lackeys and hired goons. Um, and well, it's, like a, it's a planet-wide for It um, is, absolutely. And he represents, unlike a lot of villains who are just presented as out-and-out evil, Darkseid is actually a representation of a very specific ideal, and that ideal is order. Um, Darkseid represents order, but it's stifling order. It's order that suppresses the individual. Um, for what Darkseid sees as the betterment of of 
everybody, which is basically suppression of any individual. Um, Sounds like a character in the dispossessed. <laughs> Except the bad guys, who is infinitely more interesting. <laughs> well, really, the, the bad guys the, are always more interesting. That, that's really the driving philosophy behind the new gods um, mythos: is the idea of the power of the individual and of individual thought versus you know suppression of that thought. And and that's what I think makes Darkseid interesting: is that he's non a non traditional villain in that respect. But what makes him a really good villain is um, his immense power as well. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think. Um, in terms of his design, he is... He just looks awesome. He, exactly. Um, you, imposing, you, you get, you get the sense of imposing. So all the, char- all the characteristics that Kirby had in him, in terms of his character and personality, is there in him as well. So you immediately get what Kirby was trying to do. But he's gone from being a New Gods villain per se to a, a wider DCU villain. Well, especially um, with the events of Final Crisis. Particularly the events of Final Crisis being the most recent yeah. um, example. Um, but also in Grant Morrison's Rock of Ages story. Rock of Ages, he stands up. a number of times. But that's just it, you know. If he shows up, you automatically know that there's some nasty stuff that's going to go down. That's it. And not just one superhero, although there's been a sort of bit of a recent trend to, you know, have soups go one-on-one with him. But if he does show up, um, you know, not one superhero can take him down. Yeah. You've got to get... It's, the it's entire DCU universe up against him, which yeah. is which is the sign of a of a really good villain. The entire yeah. world has to stop mm. for evil to be vanquished. That's right, and it's just and it's it's not just a, a punch on with Darkseid. I mean, it's, mm. there's a there's an intellectual battle as well. I mean, it's, yes, he's physically imposing, mm. and you know, I mean, Batman only survived through the skin of his teeth, <laughs> sort of stuff. by staying well out of his way and using his mind really. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it's. It's always an event when Darkseid appears. Mm. And it's not just uh, it's just standard sort of issue. Mm. Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> so we know who the, who didn't vote against him then. <laughs> or yeah. didn't vote for him, I should say. The audience will slowly discover my huge gaping holes in my knowledge about comics. Okay, <laughs> another comic villain for number three. Once again getting three votes out of the four. A personal favourite of mine. Uh, it should have been higher up in my opinion. The Joker. That Abs- one I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, he's actually my number two. Oh, well, In terms of all term villain. Um, I'm a huge Batman fan, per se. Um, no. As, as no. Really? Okay, <laughs> you guys will know that. The audience doesn't. Luke is <laughs> Batman junkie. Um, <laughs> the only Bat person junkie. I know that buys all Batman titles, even the Dark Knight. He's wearing a Batman outfit as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be very well. I am dressed all in black, so... Um, I, for me... No utility boat, though. Yeah, every great hero um, sees their, their equal and opposite reflection in their villains. Um, you know... Mori- Holmes had Moriarty. Um, the Batman has got the Joker and um, the crazy wild card versus against the strict, logical, ordered mind of Batman, and it's always created um, some of the most interesting conflicts in comics, and has come at great cost to Batman. The Joker mm-hmm. is, is is the one villain in Batman's life and career who has not just you know hurt him once or hurt him once, but has hurt him multiple times. He's not just gone after Batman, he's gone after Batman's um, associates and his friends, and has brought, Goth- brought Gotham to its knees. Multiple on, times. Multiple times. He is al- pretty much almost, has become the definitive comic book villain. Outside outside wider comic book circles. If you said, mm. if you had to name 
five comic book characters, not just comic book heroes, five comic book characters, the Joker will be one of those people that people instantly recognise. And, one, and of those, one, of, one of those reasons would be because of his portrayals on the big and small screens. So, And that's that's another testament to the character itself. You that's know. right. In so both, no matter who plays him, he can, he's, in he's always In his two recent big screen incarnations, mm. um, the Joker has dominated. Mm. Batman's sort of become a bit of a... Um, a bit of a subplot in his own film for the Joker to take center stage. It's and a, just, show just an example of how powerful he is. Mm. Uh, and the effect that he has on Gotham. He's not a minor league villain, even though he has no powers. Jack yeah. LaHeath. I'm a big fan of both. I think... They, they, and Cesar Romero as well. And Cesar Romero, I think... All three are uh, beautifully representative of the character as he was at the time. You know, and in... in the format that he is in, you know. And you Mark Hamill do... as in Batman yeah, the Animated, animated Series. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that, I think, shows the strength of the Joker as a villain, that you can have all of these different, very different depictions mm. of the villain. But at the same time, those core elements still stay there. And he, he, regardless of like whether it's the camp 60s version or the incredibly dark version we saw recently from Heath Ledger, he is always a darker, more disturbed reflection of, of Batman. Um, yeah, I totally agree. There, I mean, even in the '60s show, it, I mean, he was portrayed the '60s TV show. I mean, it's just he was portrayed in the way that was suited the the format, mm. but was still clearly whacked and absolutely uh, could flip at any moment. And yeah. uh, I just, it's, he's just, yeah. he's just, and we're, we're still clearly, as Luke said, the contrast to Batman's more sort of ordered and disciplined uh, mm. nature. It's just a testament to just how well put together he was I mean it's just a, a brilliant idea and nothing much more can be said that uh, we haven't already said I mean he's just the Joker mm. but I'm personally uh, my biggest of the actual incarnations for the smallest big screens actually my favourite would have to be Heath Ledger's I just think it was just absolutely magnificent but uh, yeah like you said mm. everybody brought something to the role mm. okay so on to number two uh, once again another three voter uh it was a hard choice for whether he would be lower or higher than the Joker, so obviously Luke is disagreeing with me. Yes, I do. I think um, your next choice, and with your next choice, I will say I do like the character, but I actually don't think he's anywhere near as impressive as the Joker. Okay, we are in fact talking about Doctor Doom, ruler of Latveria, uh, enemy of the Reed Richards and the entire Fantastic Four, and really anybody in the Marvel Universe. Uh, scientific genius, magical user, in fact the next in line for Sorcerer Supreme, I do believe. That's correct. I'm a huge, huge fan. That's a tautology. Uh, what? That's a tautology. <laughs> or a Keep going. Yeah, he's a bit of alright. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts? People? Um, well, I don't... No, Doctor Doom. You know Doctor Doom. I've got a, I've got a statue of him on the fridge. Doctor Doom guards your I, I, I stand corrected. I know Doctor Doom intimately. Crystal knows. Crystal knows what he looks like. Doom doesn't approve. <laughs> Doom does not approve. And Doom would say that actually. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my thing. Every time I walk past, like Doom does not approve. His, <laughs> arm, his arms are crossed. Not happy. Well, I think the first thing you notice about Doctor Doom is the visual appearance of the character. It's an absolutely brilliant and quite terrifying design of a man trapped inside a suit of armour with a 
horribly scarred face and of course the cloak and hood to add a sort of regal touch to him but um, the scarred face a reflection of his scarred soul exactly um let's face it with his magic he fix it up and like all great villains and this seems to be very much a trend in what we're discussing here doom represents a dark um a sort of darker depiction of uh, his arch nemesis reed richards they're both absolute geniuses but um where reed is driven by an altruistic desire to help mankind uh although if the current events of the money universe reed's just driven with the desire just to be the the, the best which is interesting because really that's a lot of what drives doom doom sees himself as superior to everybody else right. um, and that others should bow before him yeah i mean Do- doom is an absolute genius um as you say he's a magic user he's really there are so he poses a threat on so many levels to so many characters within the marvel universe um and that that makes him marvel's ultimate villain um when Doom appears, you know that the, the, the threat level has risen and that the story is picking up pace because if Doom is there, then what you're experiencing is something important and something dangerous. We've said that about um, both Darkseid and the Joker and Absolutely. Khan as well. Uh, what makes Doom different? Like, why, why isn't he just like another Joker or another Darkseid? What makes him? What makes Doom Doom? Well, there, is, there is no other Joker. I mean, he's as it, I, as, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. What makes Doom um, unique as a villain and as a character good question I'd say it's just his his personality uh, background um, and just the way he just goes about doing things I mean he's not once again like the dark side it's not just not just him wading in and just throwing the punches around I mean he sits back he plans it works it out uh, he's a master manipulator master a master manipulator, strategist that's right um, I mean he falls back on his very diplomatic <laughs> immunity so many times it's, it's, it's really and, close. and I think the variety of threat that he poses actually separates him a little bit from a character like the Joker yep. the Joker is wild and chaotic but he operates on a certain level mm. whereas Doom operates on a more global scale but also I mean from a technological standpoint um, he is possibly smarter than reed richards who is seen as the smartest hero in the in the marvel universe um he operates on a level magically that is second only to dr strange so he's he's posing threats on so many different levels he's got the backing of an entire country um he can rely on diplomatic immunity he can rely on the vast resources that his country has so so he operates on a global scale um he is um you know, audacious he's, enough to challenge beings like the Beyonder. Yeah, I mean, he basically right. sees an all-powerful being and says, I want that guy's power, and yeah. actually goes after it and gets it. I mean, this is a guy that, whilst ultimately, um, you know, whilst he can ultimately um, often fails, but the, the, the things that he achieves um, are actually quite phenomenal, really. Um, and yeah, it's really only his arrogance that, that defeats him more yeah. often than not. That's right. That's right. It's just he—he he wants to win in a certain way, and uh, yeah. let's face it: if he went all out, he could easily conquer the world. Well, he has. <laughs> and, he conquered uh, the world in *Emperor Doom*, the graphic right. novel from the eighties. Um, there's also a, quite, a, a, I guess, a tragedy about the characters that, as uh, Dave said, he's got a scarred soul, and if it wasn't for the terrible things that have happened to him in his life, he may actually have been able to emerge as a great force for good. You know, to use that intelligence and, and those resources for something better. But 
But he can't in the end. If only he would use his powers for forces of good rather than evil. Unlike the Joker, he also suffers, unfortunately, from being very badly depicted <laughs> in Fantastic Four movies. Let's just not go into that. <laughs> that was just awful, awful stuff. Okay, so moving on to number one, our top villain of all time, as voted by us, Nerd Culture Podcast. I am, of course, speaking about the Dark Lord of the Sith, the one and only Darth Vader. And I do believe there was actually no dissension in the ranks at all about this one. We've no. all pretty much agreed that, uh, do, all. that uh, Darth Vader is our number one guy. Well, Darth Vader is your archetypal villain. He is covered from head to toe in black. He has no, no human features at all. His humanity has been stripped from him. He comes fully with his own evil theme music. <laughs> he, he's got a cool voice that everybody instantly recognises. He just leapt straight to mind as my top villain. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he destroys planets. I mean, that's, <laughs> let's look at the, the level that this guy is working on it, here. He it, blows up entire planets to get his way. But even, even beyond that, you know, the first time you see him in the first Star Wars film. Wait, when you say the first Star Wars film, which one do you mean? I mean, Star Wars. I mean, proper Star Wars. I mean, you know, one that has a story and that actually has character. Probably um, a topic for another, another time. Um, but we are, of course, referring to what they now describe as a new hope. Um, episode four. Episode four. You know, first time you see him, you know, enters through the doorway of... Enters through the doorway onto the um, the Tantive 4 Looks around and breathing heavy, sort of a bit mysterious. Second time you see him, strangling Captain Antilles <laughs> to get information from him and then kills him. Or just, And that's just it. You know, hand over the throat. Where is the ambassador? It's one of the greatest. Goes, it's one of the greatest intros of all time. Yeah, it's just. It, it's, it's and you auto- automatically know that this is not a very nice guy at all. <laughs> um, this is a guy who's quite clearly in charge of the situation, um, and he represents something that is. He's not minor. He's not minor league at all. He represents something that is, in fact, quite major and um, yeah, a, should a vast be galactic. He is the representative mm-hmm. of a vast galactic and oppressive empire hmm. that is stifling pretty much everybody it is crushing throats and but it's it is one of the best entrances i've ever seen in a oh, film oh yeah right from the outset you just you know, know this he, guy he enters bad. there's there's <laughs> smoke from the battle there's corpses the skeletons everywhere skeletal stormtroopers and one of the really great things is he is completely head to toe black hmm. in a completely white environment so he automatically stands out out as a villain and i can Um, guarantee that every single one of us and everybody listening to this has now got that theme in their head (laughs) (laughs) but um, the other great thing about vader too is um as we learn as the films progress there's a real deep-seated tragedy about the character as well that's right it's it's almost shakespearean absolutely it's classic villain you you begin to understand why he is the way he is and what what has led him to this point and um you know then there is there is a wonderful character arc we see you know the evil vader in star wars that's destroying planets and that slowly sort of starts to develop a level of humanity as he um you know as he battles against our our main hero and you you come to understand that once again vader is a dark reflection of luke Mm-hmm. And of course, the strong ties of father and son become apparent in that, and you really see 
um, yeah, you see Vader's character arc as as he gains some level of redemption, and you can actually feel and, something for him. Yeah, and also humanity. I mean, as as, as it's mentioned, I mean, he's more machine than man, hmm. and by the end, you can tell that he's more man than machine. Even if it's yeah. feeble, crusty old white man. <laughs> I, I think, unlike some of the other villains um, that we've talked about here, it's that redemptive quality also that makes Darth Vader stand out. And you can feel real sympathy for him. Whereas, you know, so, someone like Darkseid or um, the Joker are really just cool and great villains when they show up and you, you feel the threat and everything. I, I don't necessarily feel a great level of sympathy towards them. No. Whereas with, with Vader, as his story develops, you, you do start to feel a little bit for him mm. and, you, and you can really understand how he's ended up the way that he is. Yeah, especially with, uh, I, I mean, I know Luke's not too, too pleased, but with the first three films, so the the prequels, uh, you get Vader as Anakin from child all the way up to where he is at the end there. And it's, yeah, I mean, the performance is left a little bit to be desired, but it just, it really, it really shows just that, just how innocent he was and the power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and he has more power than anybody in the Exactly right. It, it also doesn't help when the people that he you know trusts and respect uh, on one side, who are supposed to be his mentors, treat him like crap, and the the main villain of the piece, Emperor Palpatine, uh, or at that point Senator Palpatine, what a legend, uh, <laughs> just you know just pulls him on the wrong path. And, well, yeah, uh, completely manipulates him and pulls uh, every possible emotional string that he can to to make. Anakin become Darth Vader. He just well, messes with his head big yeah. time. One of the things I one of the things I really love is that I mean he quite clearly is the bad guy. I mean it's, there's no there's no is he really a good guy and he's just misunderstood. No, mm. he's an absolute prick. Mm. I mean he blows up planets, kills mm. people left, right, and center. Kills in the, in, in the non movie stuff, the expanding universe stuff. He's just it's just a shocker. I mean even in Episode Three where he just wipes out an entire room of young children. I mean it's just. The fact that he is that his underlings, if they fail him, he is more than prepared to kill them. <laughs> I mean, I know it becomes a bit of a running joke, but it's just you know, it, it's just unbelievable just the the amount of just atrocities that he's responsible for, and yet it, it, you can still, by the end of it, feel sympathy for the guy yeah. to, to gain out. redemption. Yep, to gain redemption. Well, well it's, uh, to gain redemption, but more importantly, to save his son. Yeah. I think that's yeah. Redemption, redemption. You know that that his mm. redemption is a thing that he'll gain if he actually saves his son. And he does. Which I don't know. Does that balance out? I mean, a whole room of children. I mean, that was somebody's sons. Well, it certainly beats. Uh, it certainly beats say Dark Side, who actually pretty much sells his son <laughs> off in order to bring about a period of peace, so that he can uh, no, basically it, replenish his forces and and start plotting and scheming again. It, it, I mean, Dark side it, versus Darth Vader. It doesn't excuse. Like, it doesn't excuse you know his previous actions. You know, blowing no. up planets, killing underlings, killing a room full of children. What it does say is that you know he's actually not going to represent the dark forces anymore. He is going to. He's um, come to see the error of his ways. Yeah. Another thing I also love is just uh, the prophecy of bringing balance to the force and when he turns bad and Obi-Wan's so upset and it's what are you so upset about I mean he, he did exactly what the prophecy said he would do he would bring balance to the force it just doesn't mean that the arrogance of the of the of the, the Jedi Knights no, it will make issues it's because he'll be a great Jedi just wipe out all the evil it's well that's not really bringing balance at all bringing balance is actually balancing out the scales of good that's right by creating a evil that's right I mean, why, I mean, why, the, the Jedi 
I've be- I mean, everything he says at the, up to a point is true. I mean, the Jedi have become corrupt, and maybe it's not necessarily evil, but maybe the other side has a point. And uh, well, of course, that turns out to be wrong. <laughs> but uh, well, at the end of the day, the person that brings balance to the Force is actually Luke. So that's right. They kind of just misinterpreted the the prophecy by one generation. In the they end. screwed it up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Just like they were screwing up everything else. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Darth Jedi's, Vader. you suck. And of course, his lightsaber, awesome. But, uh, yeah, he's just, he's brilliant. Any, any final thoughts? Yeah, he is brilliant. <laughs> he's I, I give him five looks as everyone. <laughs> the definitive comic book um, science fiction um, villain. Okay, so just some honourable mentions, some people that just got maybe one vote. So very quickly, very briefly, Serverland. Uh, the villain from the villainess from Blake Seven um, is pretty much a lot of what we discussed in the top five. It was almost applicable to her. Manipulative, cold-hearted, very cool, very <laughs> clever, um, and is a great foil for both Blake and then Avon. And is great is a great foil for Avon when Avon becomes the main character. Um, See, Dominic, I would actually say that Blake was the villain of Blake Seven. That guy's, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> Poor Blake. <laughs> um, but hey, you know, Avon, who was supposedly more intelligent, was Zach was no not able to overcome Serverland, whereas Blake was able to foil her on several occasions. But um, great villainess. All right. So uh, following on, so one of Richo's picks was Dracula, the Lord of the Vampires. Richo, nice pick. Thank you. Dracula is just a seminal villain. I mean, he's out and out evil top to bottom um he's an intimidating presence his powers make him a, a an imposing threat and that's the other thing as as a representation of uh really of repressed sexuality he really gets to gets to you on a core level as well yes make note twilight fans this is how vampires are done exactly right okay another as played by leslie nielsen <laughs> <laughs> rest in peace leslie don't call me shelly <laughs> We have one of Luke's picks, Davros, the oh. creator and leader of the Dalek race. Nice. And you pretty much summed up. Well, that's part. That's part of why he's a good villain because he creates the most iconic Doctor villains of the all time. The Pepper Pots, <laughs> Pepper Pots of Death that but, can't go up or downstairs. That can, <laughs> that can now finally can fly. That yes, still can. managed to conquer the universe <laughs> and prove to us. But um. Particularly in his very first appearance, which I think is the best Doctor story of all time, Genesis of the Daleks. Oh, brilliant stuff. He is portrayed as being, um, again, a bit like a lot of the other... Well, he's basically uh, Mangles, really. Yeah, Mangles... He is um, an absolute monster. <laughs> hasn't survived past the first Genesis story, I don't think, but um, is what, what I, seminal. What I really like about him is that his basic idea is that in order to save his race and make them more powerful than everybody else, he's going to turn them into genetically engineered monsters and house them inside <laughs> killing machines. But that's what a great, what a great villain that is. That's how it's done. But that's what also makes him um, a good character as well, his motivation, you know. Well, he, he thinks is, he's right. He thinks he's right, and he's no, trying to right. ensure the survival of his race. But all villains think they're right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but that's but, what makes them good. That's but what stops yeah. them the extremes that he'll go to in order to prove Exterminate. That. So another choice from Crystal, back to the Star Trek universe, as you're a big Trek fan. Uh, Q. Q. Q as a villain. Q. Why'd you vote for Q? Q I voted for just because he's so enjoyable. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he's necessarily the greatest 
villain of all time because he actually does some good as well. Uh, sort of he 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 can go both ways. Q he swings both ways. But <laughs> <laughs> so when he shows up, he is clearly a bad guy. He's clearly a I bad mean, guy. He introduces the he, He's to introduced the as a bad guy, guy and um, he, he, and but you know he mm. he also actually helps out the Enterprise crew. I like that the, there's a duality to Q. And the arrogance of omnipotence is great. So he's not necessarily a bad guy per se, he's just, he's just used to getting what he wants. He's just used to getting, and he's such an enjoyable character, and he's funny as. <laughs> well, he's a good he's a good foil for um, Jean-Luc Picard as well. Yeah, Jean-Luc's so serious and regimented yeah. and... Um, Q really has fun just trying to listen. Him exactly, up. he and messes he messes with his head on diff- different ways at different and times. John That's Delancey just... is fantastic. He can he camps it up when he has to, and he's deadly serious when he has to be. Well, he does swing both ways, as we've discovered. <laughs> he's, it's, I just yeah, that's probably that's what kept me watching Star Trek: The Next Generation because of that first Especially episode through, first, through, through the, the first, uh, first series. Season, first season. And for just one more, we'll go with one of Richo's choices, Roy Batty, from villain from Blade Runner. Yes. What I really like about Roy Batty is, um, uh, in much the same way as what we've discussed about Darth Vader, he's actually a sympathetic mm. villain. Like, I do feel sorry for him. All he wants to do at the end of the day is live. And he's been genetically engineered to die at a certain point. Mm. Um, so, I, I, what, what is it? What is it like to live with an expiration date? Exactly mm. right. And and as he says, there is so all of these experiences that he's had. He's he's he tells us he's seen things that we wouldn't believe, mm. and yet that's all going to go soon, and that he, he is going to die, and everything that he has experienced is going to be lost. Mm. But um, that's also one of the great things about that last speech is that you know we've seen, we've seen him sort of struggle with who he is to a certain extent and want to. You know, get some finality, I guess, from Terrell, um, and we've seen him do monstrous things. Um, and then, in one beautifully written monologue, we get his humanity, which yeah. is uh, partly improvised. I mean, all the the moonbeams and lost mm. in the rain—that's all all Rutger. So, mm. Blade Runner, the is upcoming a visually... shot, with a shotgun. Mm. <laughs> Blade Runner is a visually beautiful film, and he brings to it a beautiful performance with beautiful words yeah absolutely and and in in one scene and you know it's a shame yeah it's his final scene in one scene everything that we need to know about the character is just summed up beautifully for us it's resolved nicely and the whole film just stops dead at that point i mean it's just i mean it's everything the chase the chase sequence is finished the good guy or the supposed good guy is you know almost dead (laughs) <laughs> and just and just everybody just just the whole audience just stops just to listen to what the bad guy of the entire mm-hmm. film has been. I mean, this guy has murdered people on screen for no real reason. It's just it, he's just what they, everybody wants to hear his final thoughts, and when they do, they're just blown away, mm-hmm. including including Deckard. And unlike you know, most villains, you want the villain to lose. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole point: is that the villain is there to be defeated. To get their comeuppance. Yeah. Whereas here. You, you want him to live. You want yeah. him to survive. You want him to be able to go on because what's happening to him is so tragic and he's such a, a, a tragic figure despite, you know, some of the more monstrous things that he does. Totally agree. There you go. The Nerd Culture Podcast Top 5 Villains. Check them out. Give yep. us your opinion. www.nerdculturepodcast.com Tell us Love. why we're wrong. 
Love to hear from you. Are we right? Are we wrong? Just to let you know, you are wrong if you disagree with us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to the harshest critic in the world. Um, we'd love to hear from you, whatever your opinion may be. Let's move on to coming soon. So, coming soon is where we list the films coming in the next month, up until our next podcast. Okay, so starting off, we've got May 12. May 12, we have Your Highness, James Franco, Natalie Portman, uh, essentially a stoner comedy set in uh, medieval times. Richard? Uh, not sure yet. Crystal? I wasn't impressed by the trailer. Luke? Eh. Yeah. Actually, I think it looks alright. And uh, Natalie Portman, she's in everything. <laughs> Seriously, she's going She has mad. serious nerd credibility <laughs> these days. Uh, also, May 12th, we've got Insidious, a uh, horror-slash-thriller little kid in a room, very poltergeisty. Richard? Yeah, it doesn't really look that original. There wasn't anything that grabbed me. Crystal. No. <laughs> <laughs> Luke. The film's in the trailer. Yeah, that's true. Although it does have Australia's own Rose Byrne, oh, so I did think about, about Source Code too, so <laughs> But I uh, going on to May nineteenth we've got the uh, eagerly anticipated by some people, uh, Pirates Four on Stranger Tides, the return of Jack Sparrow. Richard. Didn't like two, didn't see three, not really convinced to see four. Crystal. I'm cautiously optimistic. It's got mermaid zombies and Ian McShane, so I'll give it a go. Luke? On a cheap Tuesday, late into the run, and really only for Ian McShane. <laughs> totally agree. Ian McShane looks like he'll make that film. And uh, yeah, really liked one. Two's terrible. Three is a disgrace. So it can only get better from there. Going on to June 2nd, we've got. From Time to Time, a limited release film. Not many people know more that much about it. It's a time travel story, love, romance, time travel, how can you go wrong? Richard? Sounds like something I've seen multiple times before. Crystal? I love a time travel story, I'll give it a go. Luke? It's science fiction, I'll watch that stuff. We'll give it a shot. And the same day, June 2nd, which probably everybody will see and for Time to Time will bomb, is X-Men First Class. Richard? No, not convinced by the trailer at all. The trailer's awful. Crystal? I'm pretty mad on the whole X-Men franchise. Fair enough. Luke? From time to time sounds far more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, X-Men First Class gets a big thumbs down from us. We haven't even seen it. But of course we will see it. Okay, so that's coming soon. So, that's all from us. Thank you very much for listening to our episode one. I'm glad you came along. Please check out uh, www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Give us your opinions. We'd love to hear from you, whatever that is. Check us out on iTunes, uh, Nerd Culture Podcast. Uh, rate and review us. Even if it's a bad review. I mean, we can only learn from our mistakes. And uh, please subscribe. It's free, nice, clean, family fun. And thanks to the Nerd Culture Podcast crew for attending. Richo. Thank you. Crystal. Thank you. And Luke. Where's the popcorn? <laughs> Bye. Nerd Culture Podcast, now completely banjo-free.